All right, let's go. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind us in just a little bit. If, uh, we also have some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the rooms uh, in the racks underneath the seats. Uh, you just stick your hand under there and grab the paperback. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you that one. We value God's Word here. We believe it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance, that it's the, the tool that God uses to shape us individually and as a body called the church. We believe it's the primary means by which He makes Himself known to us as His creation. And so we put the, the Bible on a pretty high bar here, and uh, we, we trust that if you take one home because you don't have one and you start reading it, God will use it in big, big ways. And so it's definitely better than sitting on a shelf in our office all week. Far more valuable in your hands if you open it up. Um, as you're turning to Isaiah 9, I want to thank a couple of people. Um, number one, did you know that we have a snow removal team? Uh, it's pretty much Tom Saramet. Uh, he's, got, he's got some helpers, but man, I, I rolled up here at 7.50 with shovel in hand going, all right, we're going to do this, and it was done. All right, And so if you got in on a clean sidewalk today, uh, find Tom later and, and give him an, an attaboy or something because, man, he deserves it. He works his tail off. Um, the other guy I need to thank is JB. Um, so many moons ago, I used to be responsible for doing church music in a lot of different ways. And to be honest, I kind of hated Christmas music. And it's not because I don't like Christmas music. It's because it's hard to play with a guitar. All those songs are written for piano, and so if you've got to figure out how to play them on guitar, you've got a lot of work to do. And so JB has been working hard the last few weeks to prepare a bunch of Christmas music for y'all. And so if you get a chance to kind of pat him on the shoulder, he needs it. <laughs> and so he's been working real hard. Isaiah chapter 9. Um, we kicked things off last week with uh, an introduction into the celebration of Advent. And we said that last week for the follower of Jesus, that Advent is not just uh, about the celebration of the first coming of Jesus, but also the celebration of the second coming of Jesus. That it's, that it's a both and kind of thing for us. Um, that when Advent is celebrated correctly, that it forces us to slow down and really kind of take stock of all the things that are going on around us, take stock of these big themes of hope and joy and peace and love and, and what we said last week that, that those aren't just kind of abstract things but that those are the realities of a coming king. And that's good news because, I mean, I mean, think about it. Does, does our world, doesn't our world kind of desperately need a lot of hope, a lot of joy, peace, love? Man, I long for a day when that king will finally get here. How about you? Yeah, and so we, we learned last week that these aren't abstract concepts for the follower of Jesus, but these, these are the characteristics of a good, wise, faithful king. That Advent is not just about celebrating Jesus' first coming as a baby, it's also about anticipating his coming on the clouds where he will make all things new. And so we opened up things last week by looking at the theme of hope, right? That the stump is not... The end of the story. There is a shoot, and God will cause life to spring up again. And God's promises will ultimately be filled. So are you all ready to jump into the theme of, of joy? Like, and when I say that out loud, is anybody going, no? <laughs> you all ready to jump into to looking at the theme of joy? Like, no, I just want to be miserable. <laughs> of course we do. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But, time out. <laughs> Context, right? 
So we learned last week that, that the primary point of Isaiah's letter is to warn God's people, the nation of Judah, about the coming wrath because of their haughtiness or their pride, right? That, that, that the point of Isaiah's writing is to say, listen guys, you have erred in this way and you have erred in this way. Like they kept up all the religious actions. They did all the things God commanded them to do on an outward level, but their hearts were far from him. And God promised that when they walked down that path, that, that judgment would come. And so Isaiah's letter is all about explaining that that coming wrath is actually coming, Right? And so, um, if you've got a physical Bible, you can kind of flip back to chapter 8 real quick. I, I didn't give it to our guys in the, in the booth, so they may not be able to put it up there. All right. Um, you see the little superscripts uh, above the text? Those aren't authoritative or anything, but they can help you cheat a little bit. And so, in chapter 8, uh, right above verse 1, it says, The coming Assyrian invasion. And then down over verse 11, your, your copy of the scriptures probably says something to the tune of, Fear God, wait for the Lord. All right? So, God is promising, hey... The Assyrian army is coming. Wrath is coming. And then chapter 8 ends in verse 22 by saying, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's a fun little ending to chapter 8. <laughs> right? That's a, that's a sad thing, man. God's promises, there are dark and dreary, painful days a-coming. Two words he uses to point that out. Gloom and anguish. Neither of those are positive words, are they? Anybody hoping for more gloom and anguish today? Neither of those are pleasant, and you can't spin it into something positive, can you? You can't spin that. You can't go, well, anguish is really this other thing. No, anguish is anguish. Like we do that with the Old Testament sometimes. We, we point to these things and we're like, ah, well, maybe that doesn't really mean that. No, gloom and anguish. God says there is a dark day coming, but Isaiah is not done writing, is he? Chapter 9, verse 1, but. There's good news in the but, isn't there? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So God promises wrath for his people, but he also gives Isaiah a picture beyond that wrath to a restoration to come, right? He gives them a picture of something after the judgment, after the wrath. And this sounds a lot like last week, right? The stump is not the end of the story. But then he starts listing off some places. He says the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the region of Galilee. What's so special about those places? And why are they held with contempt? Well, these are northern territories in the kingdom of God's people. They're, they're to the north, right? And so if you look at a map and just picture it in your head, you got, you got the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, and you got this, these territories that are in the north, and Assyria and Babylon and all the other countries that, that want to conquer God's people are all to the north and the northeast. And if you're going to conquer God's people, you've got to sack the, the capital, Jerusalem, right? Which is kind of in the south. Which means... 
that every time somebody wants to conquer God's people, they march through those territories, north to south, to the capital. You think they buy a hotel room and shop at some small markets and local businesses on the way through? It's more likely that they get some warm-up practice, right? It's more likely that they attack people on their way through to the big fight. That they conquer people and burn villages and carry people off into slavery. If, you're, if you know your Bibles well, you're thinking, what about Egypt? Egypt went and picked a fight with Assyria and then attacked Jerusalem on their way back down, still north to south. And so if you live in the territory of Zebulun, the territory of Naphtali, if you live in the region of Galilee, how are you feeling about your neighbors? Think they're a little frustrated with that? Anybody see uh, the, the news report or whatever you want to call it about Nashua being ranked the safest city in America this week? <laughs> Whether you believe that or not, um, and whatever metrics you want to use, like we love our city, but there's good reasons to believe that that's just a load of bunk, right? I guarantee you, Galilee during Isaiah's day is not making the cut. No one lives in Galilee if they can help it. If they can do something about it, if, they can, if they've got the, the clout and, the, and the, the wherewithal to move up in society, they're not living in Galilee by choice. And Isaiah says they're held in contempt. They're seen as less than and as a problem. <laughs> you think people in the southern regions of the kingdom wish that those folks in Galilee could probably slow some people down once in a while? Like, Galilee's got their own problems, but everybody even outside of their region in the kingdom, they, they don't look too fondly on Galilee either. And so if you can get out of there, you do so. How in the world is God going to make the northern lands glorious? Isn't that what he says? End of verse 1. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. How in the world is God going to do something with backwater Galilee? And it's here that we get to puff up our chest a little bit because we know something that Isaiah's readers don't know about Galilee, don't we? If you're new to the Bible, um, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, tell the story of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry, his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. That's what those are for. And big chunks of, those, of that story, of, of those accounts, happen in the major cities of Jerusalem and Jericho. But there's also large chunks of those accounts that happen in the region of Galilee. Jesus was raised in Galilee, lived and worked there until he was in his early 30s. Jesus called Galilee home. Like, we know something about Galilee that Isaiah's readers don't know. And even though that part of the kingdom was commonly seen as podunt and gloomy, Isaiah tells us that there's coming a day when the gloom will be gone. Verse 2. The people 
who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. So again, Isaiah uses a past tense to talk about something that hasn't happened yet, isn't it? It's a past tense. It, it, this, is, this hasn't happened yet. And Isaiah says that, listen, wrath is coming, destruction is imminent, but destruction is not the end. Even though there is darkness, there is light on the horizon. You ever been in total darkness before? Like total darkness. Like in a cave or a perfectly sealed room. And if you spend more than just a couple of novel moments, something other than just for fun, let's turn out the light and see what happens. Like if, you, if you're locked in a place and there's total darkness and you can do absolutely nothing about it, man, that'll get to you. That's the kind of stuff that they make horror movies out of. Total darkness is, can be, it can tear you apart on the inside. But to begin to see light, that changes things, doesn't it? To begin to see light when there's total darkness, it'll take your breath away. You start with hope. It's like, man, can that be true? Is, is, that, is that what I think it is? But as you get closer and closer, this is why we have phrases like, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? As you get closer and closer to that light, as you, as you begin to move from a hope that this might be true to a joy that, that yes, this is true, man, celebration just erupts in you, doesn't it? To be in circumstances where you can do nothing about them, all right? to be in total darkness, to be completely lost, and then to be moved to, I see the end. Man, that's good news. There's an explosion of joy that happens in that moment. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, that's a picture for you, will be burned as fuel for the fire. So Isaiah says that they will have joy, they will celebrate as in the day of Midian. So what is that about? What's the day of Midian? It's the story of Gideon in Judges, Judges 6 and 7. If you don't know the story, Gideon finally gets around to trusting God, something he struggles with mightily, but he finally gets around to it. God whittles his, his army down to 300 men. And they go and defeat the Midianite army of 135,000 men by smashing some clay jars and shouting real loud in the dark. What a story. They cause a ruckus and the Midianite army slaughters themselves. That's the story of the day of Midian. So if you've never read the story, what's the story of the day of Midian about? It's about God. Hear me not about Gideon. Gideon is not the star of the story of the day of Midian. Gideon finally got smart enough to trust God to do what God does, and God handled it, right? Otherwise, God would have sent him into that, that battle with far more than 300 people. If it was on Gideon in that moment, that's not how that story rolls out. But because this story is about God doing what only God can do, 
we get this story and we, we get to point at it with joy. Do you remember what God did then? How great is our God? As they burn off the, the vestments and the, 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 the tents and the battle armor of their conquering people, as they put all those in the fire and watch them burn away, the last vestiges of their conquerors are going up in smoke. He says, hey, do you remember that joy? Hey, you remember that joy? Remember what that felt like? Small potatoes. You remember what it felt like, the joy that just exploded out of you as you watched the Midianite army flee with their tail tucked between their legs and then you went and got the rest of them and you burned off the last remnants of everything that they left behind? You remember the happiness and the celebration and the joy that you felt in that moment? It ain't got nothing on what God is doing now. Isaiah says. The only explanation to the story of the day of Midian is to say God did something crazy. How great is our God? So what's God got in store now? You want another crazy story? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Why does Isaiah hearken back to the story of the day of Midian? Why does Isaiah hearken back to the only God could do it this way story that exploded with joy? It's because that's the framework that'll help us understand how absurd and amazing the announcement of a baby to be born is in this deep, dark season. Baby announcements are, get, are becoming a bigger deal lately, right? I mean, Katie and I got two kids. We did two baby announcements. It, it, but it's not just a birth announcement now, man. It's, it's spreading. So you've got the, the pregnancy announcement, and you've got the, the gender reveal, and you've got the name announcement, and then you've got the final birth announcement. Man, we did it all. We, we did a lot more for our first kid than for our second kid. Don't tell Will. Second kids, man, they get the leftovers, right? No, we, but we did all that, and we're two and four years removed. Man, it seems like it's still growing. Man... Scroll down the news feed of a young married couple, and it's nothing but baby announcements lately. That's, that, I mean, that's kind of where we're at, social, social life-wise. And y'all kind of walk through those seasons, right? Baby announcements have become this really big deal. And I think God has just kind of designed us, wired us to celebrate in that moment. We get the joy. We get the good, wonderful gift that that is. It, we, we sense it at a deep level, and it just causes us to to be joyful in that moment. But it also kind of fades pretty quick, right? Like we don't, we're two years removed. We're not sending out major announcements for what happened this week, right? Like could, we're, we're not sending out a major announcement because our two-year-old had a meltdown in the grocery store. <laughs> Put a picture of Will's splotchy red face on a postcard. We were really embarrassed in aisle 10 this week. Put a stamp on it, stick that sucker in the mailbox. We're not still announcing that kind of stuff. Life kind of moves on, right? The excitement fizzles out. No one wants to celebrate that. It's just kind of life, right? Isaiah tells us about a birth announcement that may be bigger than, than what our culture can produce, right? I don't think this one is fizzling out. 
Isaiah 9 gives us a baby announcement that earns the people walked in darkness have seen a great light kind of status. In Luke's account of the birth narrative in, in Luke 2, uh, we, we get a picture of the host of heaven, angel after angel after angel, an army of them shouting with joy, singing, if you want to read that into the text, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. With... This is a slightly bigger baby announcement. This kind of announcement is literally changing the world, and this baby announcement is the greatest version of only God could do it this way the universe will ever know. So how do I know that? Because that was just verse 6. The first part of verse 6. This child is going to have some things. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah says that when this child establishes himself, he will have the government of the cosmos on his own shoulders and he will get to rightfully claim a couple of titles for himself. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Prince of peace. Everlasting father. The Bible study, uh, the study Bible, excuse me, that I have, that I like to use the most, I've got several in my office, but the one I like to use the most looks at this verse, points at this verse and says, this is the invincible figure striding across the world stage, taking his gracious command. Man, that'll preach at Christmas time. Right? And I can get excited about that verse. It is easy to preach Isaiah 9-6 to the rafters at Christmas time. But verse 7, it's harder to preach as a Christmas text. I mean, did you catch what it said? What did it say? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Anybody walking in perfect peace and perfect justice and perfect righteousness this morning? Oh, you neither? Anybody in here this morning skipping through life because you literally don't have a care in the world? How many of you had to get up and dig yourself out this morning? I did. Jesus has come the first time, but a lot of this stuff are things that haven't happened yet. Right? Jesus showed up like he said he was going to show up. The, the prophecies were true. He came when he was supposed to come. He came in the, the way he was supposed to come. We celebrate Advent and it's great and it's glorious and we're having a, a good time with it. But man, I long for a, a world of perfect joy. How about you? And we're not there yet. So has God broken his promises to us? Did Jesus fail to live up to all the things that were claimed about him? Has he bailed on us? We talked last week about the reality that Advent 
is not just about celebrating Jesus' first coming. It's just as much about anticipating and longing for his second coming. A lot of theologians and commentators will use what they call the two-mountain illustration to talk about Old Testament prophecy. Uh, when, when you're far off in the distance, two mountains look like they're right beside each other, right? Until you get up close to them and you realize that they're several miles apart and there's this giant valley in between them, right? Man, valleys can be pretty. They can be really pretty, but they can also be kind of scary. And if you thought that you were going to be on the other mountain by now, and you find out that you're only just at the bottom of the valley, and that'll break your heart. Anybody else walking in that? To, to think that you would finally have been somewhere else, but to realize that you, you're not even close, it's disheartening. It sucked the life right out of you. So what do we do with that? How do we pursue joy in the meantime? How do we pursue joy while in the valley? It's simple. It's actually crazy simple. By trusting the one who is faithful to get us over the first mountain. Right? Hear me, church. He has come. And he will come again. That's what we're really celebrating today. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We move from clinging to hope to deeper and deeper understanding the joy of, yes, it's not just, it's not just that it can be true. No, 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 this is true. I am waiting for this. It is coming nearer. I am so ready. I'm in. It's not just a hope on the horizon, on the horizon. It's a confidence that he's coming and we're nearer today than we were yesterday and tomorrow will be even nearer still. He is faithful. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. You press into him by trusting who he is and what he promises, Right? That even though the valley is dark, even though the valley is cold, even though the valley is lonely, even though the next mountain seems too far away, that he is the creator and sustainer of both of those mountains. And oh yeah, the valley too. Right? He's got this. And so you press in this morning by trusting him. You allow the next few weeks to, uh, to be shaped by the joy that knows what the next mountaintop is bringing with it. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we'll have a couple of folks up here to talk and pray with you if that would be helpful for you. You respond to, to God however he's calling you to respond. What if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus? Man, I'm glad you're here. I say all the time that I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Um, your response this morning is to meet the one who, both, who gets to rightfully claim both the titles of Mighty God and Prince of Peace. He is overall and through all, and in all, and he wants you to know him. You do that this morning by repenting of your sin and trusting him for salvation. 
You do that this morning by believing who he says he is and by following him as Lord. If that's you and you want to make that decision, we're here to talk. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let us each respond to God as he's called us to this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for Isaiah 9. Thank you for being a God who we don't just have hope in, but because you consistently fulfill your promises, because you always come through, that hope leads to joy. It's not just that it can be true, it's that it will be true. We're not just clinging to hope here, we are clinging to our Savior and we can explode with joy because you are faithful and you've already proven that you are the God who does the crazy. You are the God who does in a way that only you can do. And you will forever get the glory with it. And this may be the craziest version that you're going to come again, but God, you are good and you have proven yourself trustworthy. So while the, the next mountain may feel too far away, while the valley may seem too low, too dark, too gloomy, too whatever, there is a light on the horizon. And you will bring us home. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you draw them to yourself this morning? Would you convict us of sin? Would you help us walk in hope and in joy? I believe you're the author of joy. So show us what that is this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.